Yat A. Hello. Welcome to Real Native Roots Untold Stories, a podcast by a Native woman with deep roots, hosted by yours truly, Vicki Katsuli Boy Oldman. I am a lover of stories, a connector, and a holder of wisdom keepers. Each month, we will be connecting with our Native relatives and exploring what medicine our guests share and offer to us. Please join me on this uncharted journey to learn, connect, and reflect. Ayahat. Thank you. Welcome. Good morning. Good rising. Good afternoon. Good evening. I don't know what time of day it is for you, but hello. It is so good to be in this space again. I don't know what happened. It just, it is going by so fast. I have been busy and I think some of you who've been following me know that I've been on this little journey of getting on a motorcycle. I took classes last year. Lately, I've been getting on the motorcycle with a friend and we've been doing these day rides. And then recently I went on a three nights, four day ride and it actually came into a seven day journey, which has been fun. I take any situation that happens as learnings. What this ride has taught me, two things is go with the flow, really take in nature. That's one thing I love about the riding is I am taking in all of mother nature there's nothing around me just to see the beauty and the awe and the rawness of Mother Earth. It's just so beautiful. Like the birds and the wildlife. It's different when you're in the car, when you see it. But when you're in a motorcycle, it's a whole nother experience. It's telling me, Vicki, let go and go with the flow. Don't map out everything. I tend to map out everything. This journey made me think about retooling. So when we think about our life, we all have like a little tool bag. And that tool bag has little things that we kind of go to or we make reference to. Some of you who know, I'm a facilitator. So in my tool bag, I have different kind of markers. I have different kind of tape, different ways to bring people together. I have all kinds of tools in there. Some things I've used once in a blue moon and other things that go to all the time. This experience made me think about when something happens, we really need to look in our tool bag and think about what needs sharpening. What do I need to get rid of? Like, okay, I don't use this tool. Why is it in here, right? Because it's added weight. I want to make sure the tool bag is serving for its purpose at that moment in my juncture because the world has changed so much since COVID. How we are holding space, how people are growing and how people are thinking is so different it made me realize as I'm facilitating, does my tool bag serve its purpose? You know, that I need to put in new tools, get rid of older tools and sharpen tools that I still think are really, really good. That is my lesson for you all. Go with the flow. Just take in mother nature. Number two is look in your tool bag. I am going to read a poem. Richard Wagami's book is called What Comes From Spirit. This came to me this morning as I was looking for a poem. So here we go. Creator does not tell us who to love, only that we learn how. Love is spiritual. It comes from the spirit place. There is no color there, no gender, no skin, no history, no time, no right, no wrong, no better, no best, and certainly no politics. It is a place of pure love. It is a common home and we all return to it someday. 
So it is our soul's mission to learn love. Remember that we spring from love and hold your loved ones close. When you trust your life to creator and become willing to take the next indicated step, all matter of miracles become possible. I remain in slack-jawed awe at the richness of my life. Mm. That is so beautiful. I'm, I'm actually a little tearing up because I feel like that poem is what I experienced this past seven days on the journey. Like I was in love with mother nature. I was in love with my life. I was in love with the experience. I feel like when you're in that moment, that is when you do a lot of learning. Uncharted learnings happen. All right. I am going to introduce our guest. I'm so excited. I've known this woman for a long time, but I've not stayed engaged with her or in touch with her. We follow each other on social media. In my humble opinion, she's like the pioneer of economic development. <laughs> when I met her, I was still really young in my career and just trying to figure myself out and like, what am I going to do? What's my gift? And trying to find a place and where I want to contribute to our Indigenous communities. She, at the time, actually started this organization and was running the organization was with First Nations Development Institute. So she was working there. She was the CEO. And then her vice president was Sherry Selway Black. So I was more connected to Sherry. I worked a lot with her. Anyway, I've known her since then. I knew she did a lot of publications. She really was like at the forefront of thinking about what does economics look like in our Indigenous community with an Indigenous lens? Like, what does that mean for us? The way she had broke it down was simple and how we as Native people have been doing this all this time. We know how to manage resources. We see how we manage resources so differently. She's been in that world for a long time and I hadn't seen her for a while. Facebook, you know, reconnects us with people and I saw her again. Then I had learned she was doing international work and I was like, wow. So recently we reconnected and I had always wondered where she went or what she was doing. And she was, again, of course, doing important work, helping people that need her help and continuing to share with folks her ideas and also pushing the envelope of what it looks like in terms of how we need to be thinking differently. Anyway, I wanted to bring her on because I wanted to get to know her. And I feel like it's important to get to know who she is. This podcast is learning about our people and learning about how they flourished, how they bloomed into who they become, and also the gifts that they give to us. Without further ado, I'm so excited to introduce you a friend of mine. Her name is Rebecca Adamson. Rebecca, why don't you come in and say hello to our guests? Thank you for such an introduction, Vicki. And I was trying to think back how many years, but we're talking decades. So I decided to stop. <laughs> let's, just, let's just go ahead and forget all those decades. But they've been a journey. They've really been a journey. And in listening to the poem that you opened with, I wanted to say, I, I was listening to an interview with Margaret Atwood, the Handmaiden's Tale author, and she said, writing a book, poetry. I can't believe I did this. I forgot to press record. Oh, okay. Let me press record. And I'm just- What about your poem and everything? No, it is recording. What am I doing? Rebecca, <laughs> you're still on that bike. <laughs> you're oh still God. on the journey, man. And you just, 
getting over a flat tire. That's that somehow fits. <laughs> oh my god, that is so funny. Oh we all have flat tires here and there. So. <laughs> I tell you, it did shake me up. So please tell me you were you were saying about the poem and what spoke to you about it. Well, it was listening to her describe poetry as the music between writing a book and composing a song. And that just really stuck with me as just a beautiful way to understand this unique and powerful way of communicating. And then when the poem was about love, I was completely unprepared as I listened to the music of love. It just hit me how so many times it carries us through. And the source for me has always been nature. That source that I tie into, that beauty, that serenity has always been a centering force in my life. It really was a wonderful way to start our conversation. It brought a lot of reflection to my work and and how much it has just meant the love. I could really use that as describing how back in my early days with the Coalition of Indian Controlled Schools, I didn't grow up on a reservation. I'm Cherokee by descent. And so a lot of my journey was opening up. And I think there was an advantage in some ways to opening up and discovering the brilliance. And the Coalition of Indian Controlled Schools was my first job And they would drop me into communities where it was a horrific situation for education. And I would work directly with communities in this brilliance, this absolute indigenous brilliance just came forth like a poem. I mean, it just really touched me and how we're working with the kids. And so there was love already there. And it was about the children and it was about the generation. But those communities with their love for their children, understanding of the future, and then the brilliance of thinking through and the systems thinking was just grounding me in a way that led to my whole career, really. was my path, my motorcycle ride with many flat tires. (laughs) With many flat tires, right? Well, I appreciate you noting how the poem moved you and that it connected to nature. And that's sort of like your first love and really where you built, I think you said it's your source in how you navigate in this space. It made me think right away when you were saying that is trying to envision little Rebecca, you know, when she was little, when she fell in love with nature and when did she realize I love being outside? Like this is my place. Because I wasn't growing up in a community that really did have that connection the way we do in our communities to nature. A lot of my memories, Vicki, were alone. I remember spending enormous amounts of time where I would lived in a rural area and I would walk out into the fields and I would actually just lay there and I would just lay there and I would experience the sounds you would hear. The grasshoppers would jump on you. The sun would warm you up. You could hear the, in some ways they were just weeds, but the, the the leaves and the rustling from when the wind would blow them. I remember a long times of going down to the fishing pond with my grandfather, the catfish down there and catching him and hearing the creek as we got closer to the pond. So they were they were kind of moments of being alone with nature. And then like I said as I as I became more aware of my heritage, I became so much more 
connected and the picture got larger, larger, the feeling got larger, the connection got larger for me. It's still, I mean, all through school, I, when my mom passed away, I was up in the attic going through stuff and I, she had all my report cards, right? And I started looking at them and it was consistently from kindergarten on, the teachers would say something like, Rebecca's a nice child, blah, blah, blah. We're glad to have her in the class, blah, blah, blah. But she daydreams too much, you know? <laughs> it's just, I don't claim to remember my daydreams, but I do claim to remember that feeling that I had. And it was the same feeling that centered me when I was alone with nature, or even maybe not completely alone, but I had those moments when I could connect and I was truly connected with it. And that stayed with me my all, my whole life. I live out here in a, on a hundred acre farm now, about an hour outside of DC. And I would be crazy if I had to live in DC. It just, it, it wouldn't work for me. So I, it got me curious. Thank you for sharing that about your grandpas. Tell us a little bit about your grandparents, who they are, where they're from. And, and of course, I always like to know how parents met and tell us a little bit about your people and your roots. We're entering a little bit of what I call family mythology. You hear these stories and they are very truthful in some ways. Dates might get mixed up, but the way it goes was my grandfather would tell me that he was part Lumbee. He was a was the mail delivery service up through the mountains, whatever that was. He had to ride a pony and he would deliver the mail. And going up through there, that's how he met my grandmother. But my grandmother also was married. She wasn't married into, but her family also were merchants and they had a little grocery store. I don't know exactly how, if they if it was love at immediate sight, but I do know they got married. And I do know they had four children from that point. So something sparked. It was a lot harder during those days. Going back to my great-grandparents, we have family Bibles. We have letters. It's fascinating. Where my grandmother lived, we have letters where they had to use the kitchen to do surgeries and remove bullets during the Civil War. And we have pictures of the cabin and maybe two great Great, great uncle was one of the letters talks about the surgery that they had. He was actually in the Civil War on the on Confederate side and the surgery they had to remove a bullet from his leg on the kitchen table. So life was very rural, very grounded, and you grew your food. But we did have this little bit of a commercial side to it with the store. And the store was a feed store. Shortly after they were married, they moved up to Cleveland, Ohio to work in it was kind of the relocation programs where they were trying to bring Indian people into the factories for labor. And they worked their way down from Cleveland to Akron, Ohio. My mom ended up going to high school in Akron, Ohio. And that's how she met my father. He had just signed up, I think, for boot camp and was getting ready to be drafted. And they met just before he left in the army. And then from there, it had my brother and I come on the scene. But I spent a lot of my time back and forth so that my school year was up in Ohio. All of my summers was back down in North Carolina. Oh, but I forgot where, of course, then grandma and grandpa moved back down to North Carolina. Shortly after, I think probably all the kids, their kids were old enough and adults and dating or getting married or having jobs. They just hightailed it back home. And so I, I spent my times back and forth. And that also, interestingly, was a very important 
bridge for my journey in going back down to North Carolina and hanging out with my cousins. We weren't on the reservation. Like I said, we were sort of in a border town. Some of the family lived over in Boone, North Carolina. Some lived down in Hickory and working in the furniture store companies down there. But wherever I would be visiting, I would notice my cousins didn't know the same things I knew. I mean, they knew the best fishing holes. They knew how to skin a catfish. They knew how to catch a rabbit, but they didn't know their fractions. They didn't know how to read a ruler. And that I wasn't politically aware. I don't want to even pretend I was that smart or ever have been. I did at that time clearly wonder, well, why was I doing this? But at the same time, I was learning so much from them. It didn't seem unfair to me, which it clearly was. I very puzzled why they weren't doing like when we would bake in that and we would do these and even playing. And my first job, real job, again, was going back to the Coalition of Indian Controlled Schools. And it was like the lights just went off completely to pull from that childhood memories and recognize. I mean, one of the schools I worked in was Hammond, Oklahoma. It was, I think, chartered in like the 1942 or 43. And like I said, I'd be called in. And when I was sent in, the principal took me around the school and was literally bragging that they'd never had an Indian student graduate in this public school, which I took the tour, listened to him politely, went out, worked with the community, and we pulled all the Indian kids out of the school. And it just about folded because they had Johnson O'Malley funds and the 874 funding. So like two-thirds to 75% of the funding was Indian funding. One of the teachers used to just put the surgical tape, eighth grade surgical tape over their mouths because everybody knew Indians were savage. I mean, all those lessons and all that puzzlement was just gone overnight. I got it. And I think that was probably the most formative part of probably my life, really, Vicki, because I knew the brilliance was there. I had experienced it personally in my family and through the first job I ever had. And it was like nobody listened to us. Nobody really, they were so busy telling us what to do, so busy mm -hmm. telling us what we were supposed to know, that the brilliance and systems thinking that's in our DNA was never tapped. And that, that actually from, from the schools to First Nations, that, that was that piece. I wanted to start an organization that could listen to us, that mm. would listen to us that would bring resources to our problem solving. And you gave me so much credit in the introduction. I deserve very little. All the people that were out there that really knew what need, I mean, I don't mean that everybody had ABC answers. They had that thinking could figure it out. And that was, that really was the basis of First Nations. As you're saying that, I love the fact that you said, listen, there are YouTube videos that you've done different talks on. And that is also what you keep telling folks to do. And in the work today, still, we encourage people, listen, <laughs> just listen. Don't even ask questions. Just sit and listen, go and visit, listen, go and visit, listen, go and visit, listen. There'll be a point when you feel like maybe you can ask or share or say something, but a big chunk of your time, listen. And I think that's what nature taught you. 
you think about that, you spent all those alone time listening, hearing. It's true. Because the more you listen, the more you heard in nature. As you start listening, you start hearing these sounds coming out further and further and layered and layered. And that's it. I mean, I would go into the communities and a lot of times it was the quiet ones, the ones that were sitting in the back on the bench or the chair and they hadn't said anything the whole, as a facilitator, you know how that, that is, you know? And then all of a sudden, when you go over and start talking, this, all this amazing thoughts and principles and how they tie it together and, and the solutions that were going on. What I had looked at with First Nations was in economics, everybody came out and their models carried the values. To do a profitable business, you had to compete. You had to accumulate your your finances and continue to build and grow. And those principles or designs and and rules, whatever you want to call them, the definition of their success didn't fit our values. And so the first thing that I kind of wanted to do was, again, just go to the community and listen to what would work by way of economics, enterprise, revenue generating in an economic sense. And when I first went fundraising, this is this is a crazy story because when I went, first went in to do fundraising around First Nations and get it set up, I was, for a strange fluke, I ended up at the Ford Foundation and at a kind of high level. And I, and I found out later it was because they felt like nothing they were doing was working. So they just decided to listen to this crazy Indian they came in to talk to them. And so I was telling them, they said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to listen. And they were like, well, how are we going to fund you if you don't know what you're going to do? And I said, well, I didn't say I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, they know what they need to do, and I'm going to listen. Finally, this program officer calls me aside, and she goes, Rebecca, Rebecca, don't say that. Tell them you have a strategic, multifaceted strategic planning process. <laughs> it worked, Vicki. It worked. That was the basis of our first grant, was our multifaceted strategic planning process of listening. And yeah. from that, we were able to really bring forth brand new models culturally grounded, value-based models of the economy and enterprises within the economy. That was that actually was the basis of the Lakota Fund, was that kind of cultural exploration as to what kind of financing would work. I want to back up a little bit. I love that you're really threading in this listening piece and because it helps us to understand what's really underneath the issue. People are like, we don't have this or that, or they're complaining, or they're not verbally saying exactly what it is, the elephant in the room. If you listen deep enough, you know, you can hear what's underneath. Oh, this is about fear. This is about scarcity. No one's naming it, but the listening skills have really helped us to do that. Being in nature, but I think also being around elders from yay high, my parents listen, listen, they be saying, and people be talking. Most of us have felt that and experienced that. The other thing that I noted as you're talking is language. They're like, use strategic planning. You say that to a community member, they're looking at you like, what? But we've done strategic planning. We've done planning in our own way. We don't write it down and use fancy words, right? I wanted to lift those two things. Our listeners are professionals, but they're also my mom. My mom listens and she doesn't understand sometimes the work that I do. So when people ask, what does your daughter do? She just talks to people. 
She helps them. She helps them figure it out, you know. And the tricky thing is because it's different, right? I have different settings. Break it down in layman's terms. So why is this important? It made me think about one article that I remember reading it back in the day. And it was like dirt poor but resource rich or something like that. You, you probably can remember the title. But I want you to break down and let folks know, like, why is this important? Why is it important to me as a person in the community, to a family in the community? in terms of economics. You're just so generous <laughs> and, and have a way better memory than me. <laughs> when I was trying to work through First Nations development in my head, I had sort of come to the conclusion that economics was the belly of the beast. We were now in a society that really cared more about money and profit. And it was such an overpowering force that was it. I didn't know exactly how to explain it. It was just, it was kind of like just again, going back and knowing I was going to find something among us that could explain it better for me, but that my job was to stop this pressure. Because an example would be like the Menominee Sustainable Forestry, which has been for hundreds of years, received international acknowledgement and claim. It would never be a success in economic terms, unless it was board feet on the market and sold. And so that constant pressure between what we value, that should be the basis of success, preserving, enhancing, and building on what you value. And value is a very funny word in the economy. Value is how much something is worth by way of money. And they will go over and over and tell us that the market is value neutral. That is just a lie. There is no system created by humankind that is value neutral. It carries the dominant values of that society. And by claiming that the economy is value neutral, that means because I polluted the entire riverway and killed all of the habitat and sacred life, I'm not a bad person. That's just the market. It's just the market doing that. And so you have this complete shield from accountability and responsibility for what your actions and decisions are doing. It's that fatal. And there's no line, I believe, that gives us more of a contrast between the wars of an indigenous economy and a Western market economy. In an indigenous economy, this whole concept of living in balance and harmony is not a quaint anthropological needlepoint for some pillow. These are very extremely fundamental design principles. So what you had in an indigenous economy was first a belief in prosperity of creation and a kinship sense of enoughness. Now that's the economic paradigm, how we look at our economy. If you look at the Western, it's Scarcity of resources, which is fear-based. You started talking about that at the beginning. The entire paradigm is fear-based. Scarcity of resources and individual insatiable appetites. So we're all out to get everything we can. We have to accumulate and hoard because we're going to run out. Well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you look at the way it's designed, it works. There are are about 1% of the world's population that own 93% of all assets. There are five people that own as much as 70 countries. That accumulation is designed in the economy. 
it's designed to accumulate. You know, like they always say, in order to get a loan, you got to be rich. You got to, I mean, that's the truth. That's actually a truth. And then you have this fact that it's disconnected. Well, it's now even disconnected from productivity. Money isn't tied. You don't have to invest in production. You don't have to invest in building homes or schools. Money just makes money now. It's the third largest sector in the market because it just arbitrage, asset pricing, all create more money than investing in agriculture. So you have this dynamic now where we're disconnected from life in that market, and yet it runs our life. It's, it takes all of the resources out of a rural community, out of an urban ghetto center kind of community, and it directs them up to, again, it's taking it all upstream. We have to really look at the mythology behind it. First of all, you could say, okay, scarcity of resources. Well, maybe we're going to run out of fossil fuel. Prosperity creation, there's wind, there's solar, there's so many other things that can be created that will provide us the energy sources. Individual insatiable appetites. Well, you're finding through quantum physics, everything's related. If you don't want to believe us, go look at your science, you know? Yeah. So that the atom is affected. I mean, the wavelet's affected by the particle, which is affected by the wavelet. It's all created. We're all related. So that kinship-based understanding, and then all of our societies taught enoughness in so many different ways, the ceremonies, the rituals, the walkabout, where the, the minute the child can take his first step, they've made this, the Cree have made this incredible outfit with the, all these pockets and the little toddler goes out and he gives gifts to everybody. It's that understanding of what the anthropologists want to call sharing, but are actually economic terms of distribution. We had some of the most sophisticated distribution vehicles in any economy. And that distribution is what the goal of our economy was to meet the most needs for the most people. The goal of this other economy is to accumulate and hoard. I love there was a TED talk that you had did and you showed a map and the map showed the distribution as how indigenous people shared like a whale or an elk and it distributed to so many different villages. And then they showed another map of the cash economy and how much distribution was very little, very little impact. That's what you're talking about. And my question then is, how do we get back to the way the society is now, right? It's very self-centered and take as much as you can, the most toys wins and getting back to what we were all about. And that is sharing that there's enough for everybody and that we can have people who are not starving, that people can be in a healthy place. How do we get back to that? Well, I think in listening to you, it was classic because just as you rattled off where we are, you listed values. And to say that this market is value neutral is just the problem. The values are loaded in this economy and system. Competition, greed, consumption, immediacy. All of those are values embedded in the design of this economy. And I first think we have to admit that. We have to quit saying it's value neutral. And first of all, it's a baseball game. We made up the rules so we can <laughs> change them. That sort of sacred cow has to be taken to the pasture. You know? it's like, I love that. We made up the rules. We can change them. Yes. It is just that. It's interesting because like, I remember when we just reconnected, you said, well, what have you been doing? And part of it's been this journey from the Lakota Fund. Really, that's what put me kind of front and center in finance. 
And then I was invited to serve on this mutual funds board. And what was very fascinating was I'd already started looking at the value piece and the value proposition and thinking like, wait a minute, how can you say it's value neutral? You know, you can see the values operating right there. Like I said, go back to our systems thinking. We designed systems of cooperation. When you look at a whole indigenous economy, you see, you know, everybody owns Mother Earth. Nobody can sell it. Nobody. And it's all equal. I took all of those principles once and I compared them to, weirdly, Visa. And Visa was designed, the credit card industry was going anking, tanking you. They were running into $10 million a day debt. It was individually licensed credit cards per bank. So everybody was competing. There was no cooperation. They were trying to elbow each other. When DHOT created Visa, it was like, everybody owns Visa. You cannot sell. All the banks are equal partners. No bank can form a coalition to have more votes than the other bank. It's decentralized, flexible, malleable structure. All of the principles of an indigenous economy were used to create the credit card industry. Now, the credit card industry was to distribute credit. Don't get me wrong. They were not trying to distribute wealth by any means. But to distribute credit as widely as they could, they had to use the same principles of an indigenous economy. We were distributing wealth to meet the most needs of everybody, the most people. They were distributing credit to everybody so they could get more wealth out of them. It was still extractive, but the principles were amazing in looking at how you do it. This actually ties back to the story. <laughs> so I went on this mutual fund board trying to think about, well, what if we connect to community? What if we take these capital flows and bring them back to community? Because they all, they keep, like I said, they just keep going up to fewer and fewer. Your local banks upstreams to Minnesota. Well, yours probably go to Phoenix. Phoenix then goes to Denver. And then Denver takes it on up to, you know, but all the money is extracted out of the community and upscale, upstream. So I was like, what if we bring it back? And, and the unique thing about the Calvert Social Investment Funds was they were created on values. They were saying we could make more money by investing in companies that are good companies socially, that don't pollute, that don't destroy communities, that pay fair wages. And I was like, whoa, I want to see what's going on here. So I went on the board and one of the first things, and I was pretty much invited on because they were interested in what I had done at the Lakota Fund. And so one of the first things I did was I went to the shareholders, which again was a unique base of shareholders who had values. And I said, poor people are credit worthy. Why do you say we're not? And I was actually poor relative to what. And so, I, I mean, you had, it wasn't quite as simple. I had to go through the proxy process and get the shareholders to vote. And we had to clear it through SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission. We had to prove that our, in getting the vote, we needed our shareholders to say, yes, in the conventional market sense, you can invest our money at a below market rate. And, a, and at a higher risk, because we were considered risky. We've since, and for the past 25 years, we've proven we're not. But at that point, we had to get the shareholders to vote that they agreed with that investment at higher risk, lower return. And for 1% of our funds, they got up and they said, we want to do 5% of our funds. Okay, we were a billion dollar fund. So on that vote, we put several hundred million dollars into the community development financial institutions. Individuals and institutions could invest directly for the first time ever, Vicki, in 
private sector investment money going straight into community loan funds. There's over $22 billion being invested now through what's called community notes. It's an asset class. The Security Exchange Commission has recognized it as an asset class. And that's the first time we began chipping away in this sort of castle of orders and getting that money reconnected back to, there's a lot more that could be done. I mean, a simple thing, legislation that says you have to put 1% of all these investments that don't produce anything, the arbitrage, the asset pricing, all of these kinds of portfolios, 1% of their money would flood us with hundreds of billions of dollars used at a community level. I mean, there are ways to change the game. I think we need people to understand the market isn't magic and it's not sacred. It's a game that we made up the rules for. We have to demand that our values get put in there, that our economy is about providing a livelihood for us, not us serving the economy, but the economy serving us. One of the things we did with the market on this type of, and since it, when we first started was Calvert Social Investment Funds, it's changed to today. As you would guess, the conservatives are very against it. They call it woke capital and they want to shut down woke capital. And and here we are, we're based on being a free market, which means we should be able to spend our money any way we want. But it's like, no, no, you can't spend your money for good things. You got to buy pollution. We don't like what you're doing with your money. When you say we got to be good. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. We looked at, it's evolved to call ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance investing. And these are investors, and it's the fastest growing segment in the financial market. It is now proving it is addressing market inefficiencies in a way that provides a better return. So they're having a lot of trouble getting the horse back in the barn because it's proving to be the soundest, most efficient, and profitable mode of investing. No. What does that mean is they're looking at environmental performance, social performance, and governance. And under social, we have indigenous people's rights, which is where I've been focusing. Everybody remembers DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And at that point, Standing Rock, I was getting ready to retire in August 2016. And Dave Archambault calls me up and he says, will you help us with an investment strategy here around energy transfer partners? So I thought, well, I got four more months. Sure. Yeah, they'd love to do it. Oh, my God. It was, it was like I was on a rocket ship. <laughs> the leadership was incredible with Standing Rock. Like I said, I always am learning something in these things. But before that was over, there was 17 banks with the Consortium of Financing for the Energy Transfer Partners. Citibank was a major one. Tokyo and Mitsubishi. The DAPL, Dakota Access Pipeline was financed at $2.5 billion. So we put together the investors and before it was, we had 500 NGOs. Well, we actually had more, but these are the ones we could track on the Standing Rock website. 500 NGOs, we had 700,000 people sign on saying that they were going to pull their bank accounts globally if these banks continued to finance DAPL. We had $4 billion in bank account closures. We had Four banks pull their loans out of Energy Transfer Partner and Dakota Access Pipeline. And by the time that we were at full peak on our campaign, Yahoo Finance wrote, stay out of Energy Transfer Partners. Their stock had fallen 60%. 
They have never recovered full value of the stock. Wow. That's what understanding the investment market can do for us. In mm. no uncertain terms, there's higher risk when you go in on a project that's going to destroy a community. The protests, the work stoppage, the reputation loss, these are all real costs to a company. And investors, it's starting to prove out in the market. These costs are becoming what they call material, which means there's a loss in profit to the shareholder. We had shareholders suing energy. Well, we didn't in the way the information that came out mm -hmm. had shareholders suing energy transfer partners because they had failed to disclose the risk that was involved. The tribe didn't want it. The tribe wanted it rerouted. It was that simple. Indigenous rights for self-determination and, and on the profit side, a social license to say that community says they want you there. They're playing out in a way that is costing real money in the market now for companies that just think they can run over tribes. And, and so that's what I've been doing. It's amazing. And it also makes me think about how much is shifting. I know that when DAPL happened and of course, when COVID happened, a lot of light has been really put into our indigenous communities. People are more aware of us now. I just think of the news and they have statistics like 30%, you know, black and Asian. And then there's the, an other category where the other, right? And yeah, yeah. But now people know who the other is. And then they understand that the other can make a difference in how things may shift. And there's been a lot of movement happening in our communities. Young people are really coming in and pushing and wanting to decolonize the way systems are set up and push the systems to break down in the sense of we can reorganize. Why does the system have to be this way? Why does it have to flow this way? You see a lot of movement happening. And I'm curious with the work that you're doing and looking at the future generation, what are your hopes and are you mentoring young people to understand and think about the work you've been doing? I've never seen myself as a leader, I've never wanted to really be a leader in what I'm doing. I feel like it's kind of passive in a way. I like to be leading, but in mm -hmm. that leading and moving in, it's creating space. Like I just mm -hmm. mentioned when we did the Lakota Fund and the CDFIs and all the stuff, just the women you had on your show. And that was just the, some of the women we know, the Elsie and Sherry and, and Lori. We developed a matrix. We developed a lot of the tools, kind of a repeat of what we did with the CDFIs and we're working with, instead of with the coalition of the community of financial development institutions, we're really looking at the Securities Exchange Commission now. They're getting ready to look at, they're asking for comments on the human rights. Again, under S on ESG, we're pushing indigenous people's rights into the SEC. And when they start looking at these kinds of issues, they're requiring companies to report on them. And the companies are now for the first time being required by law to report the truth. Before, they only had to be truthful about their financial performance. Now they're having to be truthful about this other. And all the intellectual property that was developed around that, in doing all this work, I created First Peoples Worldwide, which was the organization and that looked at a lot of this financial piece. And we began working globally. Tristan Antone, Kyle White, Carla Fredericks. They're all my youngins, I guess. <laughs> they're, all like, they're all probably 20, 25 years younger than me. 
And then they're working with students. A lot of them are in universities and they're working with students that are just coming up through the ranks on this. They're getting the economy in a way that it took me 25 years to work my way through on this stuff. And they're just like, got it. You know, we've got all these campaigners out there. We're just trying to put a research paper together now looking at where are all the indigenous campaigns and what kind of tactics are they using? And because we learned so quickly from each other. So it was like, let's really get this down now so we know who each other are on this and let's start sharing. Gwich'in used a fantastic strategy up there around going after the insurance companies that were insuring the companies that wanted to drill in the Arctic Refuge. There's a lot of tactics in this, I think, that are going to be exploding through the next generation and the next generation. I've seen stuff come out of the Indian collectives that are starting to talk about the shareholder advocacy. I think changing the Redskins name there's way more than one person when this stuff finally hits the rubber and it's really on the ground running. And when you looked at the changing the Redskins, Susan White from Oneida was one of the fundamental leaders in helping build this investment infrastructure that we now have in place. We've got indigenous investors and indigenous people's working group, which is a collection of investors that are monthly calls, talking about these issues, signing on what they call assets under management. We had a $1.7 trillion assets under management signature letter from all the investors under DAPL. By the time you've got one point, almost $2 trillion of the market saying, we're asset owners and we don't want our assets being used in energy transfer partners. We want you to reroute. You've got the market starting to listen to you. So we've already got some really, the, the seeds out there are growing through the indigenous campaigns that are in place. We're working to catch up. We've got academics doing these, they study Kyle White up at the University of Wisconsin, Michigan. Oh gosh, she's going to kill me for not remembering. <laughs> he's, under, he's under the Tishman Environmental Center. Yeah. He's now starting to look at what's going on globally, where we did a global look at all the oil, gas, and mining reserves globally. Indigenous people around the world have 46% of all future oil, gas, and mining reserves. 40, that's half the market. If we shut it down, which we should, we need the skills to, well, we need, I always believe, I don't make the decisions, I make the, the skills the tools and the infrastructure for the decisions to be enforced. If we're protecting our lands, we need to build that infrastructure so that our folks can say no. They can build, they can protect their sustainable forests. They can protect their watersheds. And if the law doesn't do it, the market will have to do it because it's going to cost too much. They're going to lose money if they don't listen to us. And I think it, it is, it is the younger generation. I mean, I, I, it's like, I can't say, oh, I got to get busy because I got to save it for that. I'm not going to save Duod. They're the ones coming along going to save it, man. It's, it's not going to be me anymore. I just got to clear the way. I got to make the space and I got to do as much of the tool building as I can. They're going to go way beyond, way beyond. They have to. I mean, actually, they have to. And they know that. They know that in a way that I couldn't have dreamed of when I was growing up. As you're saying that, I just was thinking about all the folks that have been part of the movement 
several things is like time goes by fast. Time is just irrelevant. It's just moving and we're in it, right? We're in that space. Thinking back, geez, 25 years ago, and I was just trying to figure out where do I fit in this puzzle to help to do my contribution, right? We're all doing the lift in different places in different spaces. And that's what matters. I think we have to continue to talk to one another about we know what Nick's doing over here. We know what young campaigners are doing over here. And like, how can we continue to do the lift? It makes it easier on all of us, right? Because I think about leadership and I find that it's important to make space, to step back. I have been mentored by different people. When they step back a lot, it, of course, it freaked me out because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, <laughs> but, but they know it's like elders saying, you do know what you're doing. Just, just follow your intuition, just do, and you're going to mess up and that's okay. That's the learning. That's where Absolutely. you get stronger and better. And I'm not doing that again. You've done a lot and clearly have not retired. <laughs> Even though you had you had plans to, as you're telling me the story of you being this young young gal laying in the grass, visiting home and help create tools, you know these tool bags for all of us to use. As you think about all of that, what do you feel that you've learned about yourself, and what are you still figuring out about yourself? One of the things I learned, I guess, is I actually like change, which I think. Maybe a lot of people, it took me a while. What I figured out more was that most people don't. <laughs> it was more that because if you look, I mean, if I had, I, I left organizations that were very good organizations. I left bodies of work that were exciting, making a difference. And there wasn't anything going on other than I just had some other things I was thinking about and wanting to explore and I think that's a good quality. I don't think it's one we need in every single person. I think there's these roles, like you said, and and my journey was more trying to figure out what are my gifts and how can I use them in the best ways, which is where do they belong? And then like everything, your strength can come become a weakness. And so you want to look at that gift and you want to honor that gift in a way that you keep it working in a positive rewarding way for everybody. It wasn't a gift that worked for rewarding me in a funny way. If I'd wanted to, I, could, I would have stayed at First Nations and made it bigger. Or I would have stayed at First Peoples and made it bigger. I'm much more excited in relationship. And I make that, maybe my relationships tend to really grow from work. Like I've gotten to know Carla Fredericks a whole lot better. I've gotten to know Kyle White now. I mean, I'm learn I'm meeting new people. Dave Arshambo was incredible to work with. And like you thought I disappeared, but I just was like, I'm still on my motorcycle, man, and fixing the flat tire and just going. And it's like the road traveler in a way. And, and these are stories of my travels. And the Indian people are just forever forever interesting. Working globally, it's it's mind-blowing what you can see out there and what you can learn. And that's really what took me away from First Nations was I wanted to work globally. And the board really kind of wanted to stay domestic. And that was fine because that's a key piece, building our institutions and getting them more solid. And then there's still, still for me, I felt like Indian people have so much to offer. We need to be leaders in all sectors of society, 
It might yes. be unfair because we've got our own things we got to take care of, but there's a mess out there. And where I see solutions is within our people. And mm-hmm. I just lucked out when I started working. The coalition was one of the few organizations that had to deliver in the community with the community. A lot of organizations drift away. They're national organizations that speak for community or they fill a role but they're not really making a difference in community. And the coalition was one that that's all it was about. And so this whole work that I've been involved in, you can go back and you can look and see if it's making a difference or if it's not. Mm-hmm. That really pushes your head. You got to get it right. You got to make a mistake, regroup and work at it again because that doesn't stop. It's the truth. And that truth helps us all get better and learn a lot. And I guess that, I I guess what I learned was maybe I I learned much more comfort with that and much more deliberateness around that. Whereas before I thought I was Zooey, I sit there, I think this may be crazy, but other crazy people join in. Yes. (laughs) That makes it fun, you know, (laughs) that makes it a lot of fun. And it's always come out. I mean, I'm forever seeing things that indigenous people have been doing for generations. And all of a sudden, the European society, whatever you want to call it, come up with, like in conservation, they came up with landscape conservation because they realized that everything's connected in the ecosystem, you know, and then they claim it. Now they're coming up with circular economies and donut economies. It's all this thing about your the job is to meet the most needs for the most people in balance and harmony with all of life, period. And that's what we've been doing for millennials. What? wisdom based on your journey would you offer us this might be a little redundant for indigenous peoples but have a sense of humor (laughs) it really really helped and that's that's just good because i think that's like a little barrier that helps you keep that connection with the love and positive stuff because i would say that when you start to doubt yourself And when you start to think that you've got to be a brand, it's about branding yourself. It's about that celebrity, vacuous kind of celebrity, or it's about growing your nonprofit or your business bigger. I think my my advice would be for what it's worth is always stop and think about your values. And it's about strengthening your values. And one of the biggest myths is bigger is better because you're not going to have sustainability. Dinosaurs are extinct for a reason in a way. I mean, there's there there's a lot to be said. When you're looking at community development, the real goal should be providing a quality of life in a sustainable way for the people in the community. And so you can get caught up in these indicators of success that aren't even ours. They just aren't ours. When you look at these indicators of success, see if that's your value in there. Really ask yourself, is this my value? Or is I, am I just carrying an indicator of success that someone else told me was important? And within that, it's, it's never easy because balance, balance is constant. It's not like a static place where all of a sudden you're balanced. Balance is always that. You always have to. And that is in balance and harmony with the whole. And that's like leading. It should, these should be verbs. 
leading is a verb. Balancing is a verb. And I guess that would be my needlepoint advice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I always like to end with a couple of just random questions. So, oh no. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. So, okay. Text or talk? What's your favorite? Wait, what is it? Text or talk? Are you a texter oh, or are you more of a talker? <laughs> hey, I'm 75 years old. It's it's going to be talking. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because the young generation, they're all texters. They do not like to get on the phone. They, I know. They, they avoid the phone. It's really funny. I'm still <laughs> the only one that'll call. Just And I'll say, oh, I just thought maybe I'd catch you spontaneously. But you're not going <laughs> to. And even they tell you on voicemail, text me. It's better. I'm like, how to text. I'm saying that because I have two young boys. They're men. I shouldn't say boys, young men. And I call nothing. All right. What's your favorite season? I used to kind of hold myself to where I liked all all the seasons. Mm -hmm. I like cold now. I actually like winter the best. What song would you call out or name that would describe your journey in life? the gambler gotta know when to hold him know when to fold him <laughs> walk away know when to run <laughs> i love it i love it <laughs> that's I a good one quickly but uh, boy <laughs> that's sort of business that you know like when you're driving it's just kind of the music is being was up, up there Okay, the, the next one would be, what would you tell little Rebecca? If you could go back and tell something to little Rebecca, what would you tell her? Probably you'll find your home and you'll make it back. Yeah, probably that. You'll find your home and don't worry, you'll make it back home. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm giving little Rebecca a hug and I'm giving you a virtual hug. This has been beautiful, joyous. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and sharing all of you and continuing to just do what you can to make this world a better place. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ricky. I didn't... <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca.